0: Australian bars.
4: Titty discs.
1: In that's what to be known as from now on. Like, I'm gonna go into the Marvel Wikipedia and whatever it is. <laughs> the worst <titty> disc.
3: <laughs> get better than that.
2: Comic books. Motherfucker, do you s- read them? Hey
3: guys, welcome back to another exciting episode of Fan Holes. Comic books, motherfucker, do you read them? Hey, what's up, guys? This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts tonight, and I am joined tonight by two, count them, two of my fellow fanholes comic book enthusiasts. Why don't you guys give a shout out and let everybody know who's here tonight? Hi, I'm the awful, awful Thunderwing.
1: And I am the fantastic Justin.
3: So we are here tonight doing another comic books motherfucker. Do you read them? And we're doing another Stories from the Spinner Rack episode. Because, you know, we, we did one for the previous episode and we figured it'd be cool to get into another here. And this is kind of a, you know, anything goes episode. We just, you know, there's no rules. There's no real explicit tie-ins or anything. We all just picked something that we we read off the stands and that we wanted to sort of bring to the show and, and discuss and everything. So we've got three different books from myself. Justin, and Mike, and we'll also go in that order. And just so you guys know, the first comic is something that I brought tonight. And I guess sort of in a weird way, it's kind of a tie-in, because I did go and see Batman the Killing Joke uh, at a Fathom events in the movie theater not too long ago, so this was kind of on my mind anyway. But I brought Batgirl Special number one, And it has a cover date of 1988, and it was actually on sale. The the real on-sale date was March twenty second, 1988. The title is The Last Batgirl Story, and it was written by, well, I guess it's credited to Barbara Randall, but it's actually, uh, I I believe she went on to marry Carl Kiesel. So, you know, I guess most of her written work, I think, is credited as Barbara Kiesel. But in this issue and in some other issues that we may bring up as I discuss the synopsis, she is credited as Barbara Randall. And I I think a lot of us would probably be familiar with the penciler, but the penciler is Barry Kitson in his early days. So there's some familiar creative, at least for me, familiar creative team on this book. I guess I'll I'll start out with the synopsis and then I'll maybe go into my notes and maybe ask you guys kind of what you thought of the story and if you'd ever read it before and things like that. But here we go. When a man is murdered in the Gotham City Public Library, Barbara Gordon suspects that her old foe, Cormorant, is responsible. Four years earlier, the assassin shot and nearly killed her. The murdered man turns out to be the son of General Scar. A former foe of Batgirl and the World's Finest Team. Cormorant is also General Scar's top assassin. While Batgirl investigates Cormorant, a female killer dubbed Slash by the media has been killing violent men who have thwarted justice. Barbara soon receives a visit from her childhood friend Marcy who recently lost her husband in an accident. Marcy knows that Barbara is Batgirl because they shared their childhood fantasies in the form of dolls dressed as superheroes. Marcy tries to convince Barbara to give up her costumed identity, although, despite her protestations, Batgirl continues to work the Cormorant case as Slash continues racking up kills against men who have committed crimes against women. Batgirl loses in a confrontation against Slash and nearly dies when Slash goes after a recently released criminal, Anthony Caterino. On the verge of quitting the superhero life forever, Marcy patches up Batgirl, but Barbara knows there are some loose ends she feels obligated to tie up. Batgirl finally confronts Cormorant in his home, but he holds her at bay with a shotgun. Meanwhile, Cormorant's abused wife is called in Slash for help, and a battle between the three begins. Amidst smoke bombs and gunfire, Batgirl stops Slash from killing Cormorant with a knife to the chest. Cormorant throws away his firearms to fight Batgirl barehanded, and Batgirl ultimately defeats him in hand-to-hand combat. Cormorant's bravado evaporates as he lies face down, reaching for his gun. His abused wife gives a still-living Slash a pistol, with which she shoots Cormorant in the head. After Batgirl watches Slash being taken to the hospital, she returns home to tell Marcy that this was her last case. So that is, in a nutshell, Batgirl special number one. Just real quick, I'm gonna go down my kind of bullet points, and then I guess I'll ask you guys kind of some questions as well, but... Again, you know, this this isn't going to be a lengthy story, but this is something I bought from that same Quick Stop shop that was, you know, a couple stores down from my mom's beauty salon slash nail shop. So this was one of those comics where, you know, this was me killing time, you know, waiting for my mom to get her nails done or whatever. So there's that as far as the memories of where I got it and you know what spinner rack I got it off of and everything. And I I thought maybe it's worth mentioning that why I sort of picked this comic because I think this was sort of in the era where I mean, I I think when I was originally getting comics, the the three main things I sort of focused on were, like, Transformers, G.I. Joe, and Spider-Man. And, you know, Spider-Man, because it was familiar from, like, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And I think some of the things I gravitated to were things that were familiar to me. So one of the things that made this book jump out at me as a kid that was different from the other comics on the stands was the cover. And it was this great Mike Magnola cover where like Batgirl's leaping through a window into a darkly lit building, and there's all this glass flying everywhere. So the cover was really cool. And on top of that, I recognized her. You know, I knew who Batgirl was because I had spent a lot of time as a kid watching the '66 Batman television series and the Filmation cartoons. So again, it, it, I guess it was like a combination of. There, there was a lot of familiarity. There was a cool cover. I knew who she was. And then I guess, you know, maybe tying into, you know, what people always say, it's like, oh, it was a special and it was a number one. And, you know, maybe like you gravitate towards number ones because you're like, oh, this is, you know, obviously this is something you can start with from the ground floor and you know, you're thinking like, oh, yeah, I, you know, it's not like it's like Batgirl special, you know, 56 or something. It was like Batgirl special one. So you're like, well, how can I go wrong and everything? So that, that was kind of my rationale for, for grabbing it off the stands, basically. I guess the, some other stuff that I just bring up is even though there aren't a bunch of asterisks that point to like previous stories and everything. And even though this is kind of a post-crisis Batgirl story... It does point to a, a lot of previous kind of characters and references and stuff. So, like the sort of like the flashback where they, you know, establish who Cormorant is. It's great if you've never read it before because at the time, you know, obviously I did not read Detective Comics 492 and and 491 where Cormorant first appears and is facing off against like Batman and Batgirl and in Detective Comics. But again, if you, if you, didn't know that they set it up for you rather well that this is a a past foe of Batgirl and even if even if he wasn't in those issues you kind of get the idea of who he is and everything and you know even General Scar is sort of a character that went on to appear in those issues and World's Finest and everything so and and he's kind of a funny character too kind of like kind of like Scarface I guess like he he's one of these guys who thinks he's a military general but he was just a private who got kicked out of the army and he literally has like a scar on his face so like that's that's kind of who he is you know i guess to most people kind of a, a goofy dc supervillain who was in the bronze age but never really you know escaped i guess silver age tropes i suppose if, if you want to look at it that way but you know there, there's references to that her childhood friend marcy is also in the batgirl Secret Origins story, which comes from Secret Origins issue number 20, and that also was written by Barbara Randall, or later Barbara Kiesel, so there's some kind of flow there and everything like that between, you know, Secret Origins 20 and this story, so so there is some previous continuity, but I had never read either of those, and I mean, I remember being able to follow the story pretty clearly as a kid. I have some more notes about it and everything, but I, I don't want to monopolize all the time. I'm kind of curious, like, is this something that either of you guys have ever read before? Like, what were your kind of thoughts on this issue?
1: Yeah, I'd read before, like, many years ago. It, it, it had been so long, it was kind of, like, unfamiliar to me. And I'm glad you're, like, giving us backstory on some of these characters because, like, I was never familiar with any of them or had read... You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I'd ever read that Secret Origins issue. So I'm not familiar with, like, her friend Marcy or whatever. But, like, you know, I was thinking about this when you suggested this comic. You know, like, growing up, like, I was a big fan of the Animus Batman series. And especially Batgirl. And, like, I, you know, I had a big crush on her. Like, probably one of my first. But, like, I don't remember buying a lot of comics with Batgirl in them, like, as I was a kid. And I guess it's because, one, you know, it was. Like, when I was reading comics and buying them, it was probably a bit after The Killing Joke. And for one, you know, there weren't, you know, very many comics with her to begin with. Like, I remember when I was collecting comics, I was like, I like Batgirl. I wonder, like if I could get some old Batgirl issues, and a lot of those, like, Silver Age issues, like, those early appearances are, you know, kind of, kind of pricey, or at least they were the last time I worked, so I never kind of bothered with them, and then it's like, sometimes you'd see a back issue, like, maybe from the 70s or something, and, and, you know, like, I I like that 70s Batman stuff now, but I remember at the time, I'd see something, and I'd be like, well, that looks kind of, kind of wacky and goofy like I don't I don't think I'm gonna buy this
3: yeah I mean I I I would I would share your I guess crush on Yvonne Craig you know and and I think having that history with the Batgirl character I guess it didn't as as a kid I don't think I, I I think I treat that the same way I treat Dark Knight Returns in a way that like to me as you know funny as it might sound it's like Adam West became frank miller's batman to me and like (laughs) yvonne craig sort of became this batgirl to me it's like i knew she was a librarian i knew she had all these adventures so to me it's like yeah i may have never read the issue of detective comics with cormorant in in it you know when i was a kid but i you know i i kind of figured oh well she has other adventures and stuff that i might not know about and you know i kind of already knew there was a, a history there you know between her and Batman and all these people in Gotham City and stuff like that. So, I mean, that was always sort of, I guess, you know, just something that I I always accepted at at face value and stuff like that. I'm kind of curious, like, what about you, Mike? Like, do you have any first impressions on this? Is this something you've read for the first time? Is this something you read before?
4: Yeah, this is the first time I read this. And, like, I I had known of it before because you had brought it up where you were... You know, you were saying that you thought maybe it would be nice if they adapted this story into, like, the animated adaptation of, like, Killing Joke or whatever, like, as the foreword, but instead we got, you know, whatever they put in there. I liked it for the most part. I'm, I'm not so familiar with, like, Batgirl, like, at least, like, pre-Crisis. So, like, I, I, I know, it's it's interesting. I guess, like... She's like. It seems like she's a bit older pre-crisis. Like yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's almost like she's more like you know. I know there's like stories of her and like Superman teaming up, and there was like a hint of like that they might have some kind of relationship. So like she's more like in that age
3: range, but yeah, because uh, it's 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 weird because it, this is that period where it it's only what like it's it's eighty. 88, so it's only like what, like three years after the crisis on Infinite Earth, so it's like. I think, like, a lot of that stuff was never really super definitive as much as, you know, people want to say, okay, after Crisis ended, it's not like Man of Steel number one came out, like, the day after Crisis 12 or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, took, it took, like, a year for that to come out, and then it took, like, a little while for Batman year one to come out, and it took a little while for, you know, George Press to do Wonder Woman. So even in that Secret Origins issue I brought up, I mean, a lot of the backstory... It, it, it's weird, the, the main thing that you carry over is you you see Barbara Gordon as like a little kid and she sneaks into like Jim Gordon's office to like read up on criminals and stuff like that and then they like almost pillage like a scene from Frank Miller's Year 1 where he comes in to talk to Commissioner Gordon but it's like this weird retroactive you know retconning where it's like oh a little barbara gordon was in the office too and like he writes something on a piece of paper crumples it up and like throws it on the ground and somehow gordon even though he's supposed to be like the most awesome detective ever. He's probably still the same commissioner Gordon from the 66 series. Cause he doesn't notice that. And, and Barbara Gordon picks it up, you know, this little kid and, and basically on there, it says like, don't let him catch you. Cause he'll be angry. You know? And it's like the whole thing is like, Oh, Batman's awesome. Like he knew she was in the room the whole time and, you know, just didn't say anything. He didn't rat her out or whatever. And like, but, but other than that, I guess my point with telling that story is other than that, It's like, it goes into the whole, you know, mostly, like, pre-crisis history. Like, she, she dressed up as Batgirl, she stopped Killer Moth, you know, like... She she went on to become a congresswoman, you know, like all these kind of things where you're, you know, you're speaking to the idea that, you know, you know, there, I think there's even a line of dialogue where it's like, I liked flirting with Robin, but he was, you know, a little younger than me, you know, and I was always dreamy for Batman, you know, and that kind of thing. So there there is that aspect of, you know, she's, she's slightly older and everything. Uh, if it wasn't like directly contradicted, they... Tried to keep it intact, except for like, oh, here's you know, Commissioner Gordon's different because year one's different. You know what I mean? And like, Catwoman's different because she's a fucking hooker or whatever. But like, other than that, you know, like everything else is gonna be the same. You know, like that. That's kind of seemed to be how they played it. So, you know, speaking to your sort of, I guess, yeah, questions and stuff.
4: No, but it it was interesting. Like, I enjoyed it.
3: I I guess a, a sort of weird fond memory I have. From this is and I, I think this kind of subconsciously inspired me or influenced me when I would make my own superhero comics. But like I have like a bunch of superhero characters that I made up, you know, for myself and everything. And one of them was kind of like, you know, a, a superheroic version of, you know, myself a little bit, but it was kind of a, a Superman character. And of course, it was a guy who didn't care about, you know, breaking the Comics Code Authority rule of killing and, and all those kind of things that I found sort of faulty with comic books at the time, like when I was reading it, and I probably still do today. You don't play by anyone's rules. Right, right, exactly. But but I, I I remember, you know, I didn't want him to be like a carbon copy of Superman either, and some of the things that I added to his character was, you know, he sort of had... Kind of more like an invisible force field, kind of like Sue Storm, and that sort of explained why he could fly and why he was invulnerable and all these other things. But uh, something else that I had added was he didn't really have, I guess, what I'd call internal vision superpowers, so he always had man-made superpowers, and I think reading this is where that came from because you know there is that weapons check sequence that Batgirl has where she's suiting up kind of like she would in the 60s show except for it wasn't as sort of glamorous with all the you know saxophone music in the background or whatever but like you know she's she's basically like checking her her mask and she's got these kind of you know basically you know goggles or vision you know sensors and stuff like that and you can see i mean essentially it's kind of like batman and the arkham night games i guess today or arkham asylum games or whatever you want to call them but you know the the fact that like you know batman and Batgirl may as well be superman because they've got like telescopic vision and infrared vision and you know basically you know they've got these man-made supervision lenses in their cows and stuff and i i guess i must have always thought that was a cool idea because that was something i incorporated into my own character whereas you know he he had superpowers but you know the vision powers were something that were man-made i guess i thought it was interesting to read this issue and you know kind of like having that that hindsight and foresight i guess where you can see where the character was and where she was going and the idea that even in this issue you could see the seeds of oracle sort of because there are the sequences where she's doing detective work but a lot of the detective work involves her being on a computer and and sort of hacking these databases and everything and using like the library's database to piggyback off to like you know other you know government databases to sort of track down Coromont and find out about the general sun and all this kind of other stuff so i, I thought that was kind of cool.
1: Don't underestimate the library Derek
3: no no, no i I, <laughs> I don't think I don't think I ever have but 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 i i I think like i I you know given that it's nineteen eighty eight you know kind of a nascent you know this is not you know something that was written in, you know, 2000 or, or even today where, you know, it's like, you know, all this goofy stuff of, you know, I hacked your toilet bowl or whatever. And you're like, what? Like, you know, it's like everything can be, everything can be hacked for some reason, you know, or whatever.
4: It's got a computer chip in it, even toilets
3: you know, Tony, Tony starts running around with his, you know, smartphone hacking my toilet bowl or whatever, you know, and you're just like, what? My Stark Tech toilet, no! <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, you know, where it gets taken to the extreme. But this is, this is to me, a more realistic version of that and, and something that is sort of a, a nascent, you know, version of Oracle, even, you know, before that happens. And, you know, in, in terms of the actual story itself and, and even the art, I, I just like to point out that this is something where it's like you bought a special and it was, you know, obviously it was more pages than your, your standard comic book, but this was a meaty read. I mean, this was something that, you know, I ran down to that quick stop and came back and it kept me busy for a little while. This is not like a Brian Michael Bendis, you know, sneeze and you're done reading it book. This is like, you know, you got to take your time and read the book. And, and, you know, there's there's more than like, you know, you know 15 of the same panel or like you know there's 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 not just you know one splash page or whatever you know every three pages it's like there's actually you know multiple panels on the page and everything i mean you know this is obviously very early work of barry kitson but i mean i think i've always liked his art and and this kind of you know i guess you know to me shows like the makings of of the, the great artist that he's gonna eventually become and everything so like that part of it is is fun for me to sort of revisit again and stuff I mean the, the the only you know major criticism I'd level against it is you know the the you know again like we we've always brought up but you know this kind of comics code morality stuff where it, it and in this it really cracked me up I think this this probably is a defining comic for me in that you know sort of establishes that I don't understand it like period because you've got somebody here who you'd think if you were going to break your moral code against killing like wouldn't you do it with Cormorant rather than slash do you know what I mean like like she clearly like but it's like you're going to stop i i don't know it just like that that kind of that moment in this story like sort of blows my mind like like that that she would she would actively throw a knife at like the sort of good vigilante that's only killing bad people i mean to me it's kind of tantamount to you've got a vampire who feeds on like bad people who like you know send women into slavery and and you know shoot drugs into kids and all this other stuff and then you've got you know the the vampire who feeds on like little babies and you know cute kids and and whatever and it's like wait i don't believe in killing so i'm going to shoot the good vampire from killing the bad you know like i don't know it it's sort of it's sort of you know makes my brain explode i guess but i mean other than that like that's that's the only major criticism i have with it where where that that part of it makes my head hurt but but i guess as we're apt to say you know this is kind of a a standard trope in in comic books where it's like you know but but i guess the standard trope is them not killing period whereas here she seems to break it for an instant to not break it i don't i you know yeah it just kind of seems to fall apart in in the story which is probably why she retires you know like why she quits because it's like it doesn't it doesn't seem to compute or whatever and and then i guess the other thing that's worth mentioning and i I don't know if i'll rant about this for a few minutes or not but i mean this this was clearly intended to be sort of a prequel or a setup for the status quo of the killing joke by alan moore you know it was supposed to you know set up the fact that bad girl was retiring and maybe give her one last hurrah before she got shot in the spine and sort of taken out of the whole superhero heroic career and stuff like that. And I, I mean, you know, as to what Mike said, I mean, you know, this is something that I did think of when, when they said, oh yeah, you know, it only makes sense to, to sort of set up an establishing status quo with Batgirl at the beginning of this animated piece, even though that wasn't in the original." you know, quote unquote graphic novel. Right. And, and, and like, I can appreciate that. I mean, you know, to, to an everyday schmo who's watching it, you know, for the first time and has no reference, no frame of reference for the original source material. Yeah. You kind of want to establish, oh, that redhead is Batgirl. Like, how are they supposed to know that? So yeah, it kind of makes sense to have like 20 or 30 minutes that sets up Batgirl. I, I just think, you know, of course, you know, the way they kind of went about it with having her like fuck Batman on a rooftop was a little bit much, you know, where I was just like, whoa, and it's not so much like, I mean, we, we've sort of discussed that, you know, certain versions of Batgirl are a little bit older, and, and you know, it's not that she never had a crush on Batman or anything, but I, I don't know, I, I just always think the fact, like, I don't think Batman would sort of give into that so much. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I always kind of thought of him as the guy who'd be like, all right, like that's enough. Like let's, I get it, but let's, you know, let's, let's have this tension between us, but I'm going to stop it before it gets really bad. Whereas he, he just seems to be like, he just seems to be like, hey, fucking on Rift Ops is what I do, you know, okay. <laughs> well, you know, for nothing
4: so, else, like, you know, out of respect for, like, Jim Gordon or whatever, but... Yeah, yeah,
3: or even, even you know, knowing that, you know, maybe his uh, youthful ward has a thing for her. You know, like, there, there's a bunch of different reasons why why that whole thing is messy as it is, right? Like, that that you would sort of say no <laughs> like at a certain point, you know, you would think, but... And, and I guess also, you know, like... I'm not saying, like, this is, like, the perfect story. Like, I'm not saying, like, you you know, that, that, that they would have to adapt this, you know, word for word, panel for panel or whatever. But, I mean, it, it's interesting because they, that story that they told seemed to involve, like, you know, a male villain who, who sort of looked down on Batgirl and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's sort of similar to Cormorant, you know, like, like, in that vaguest of senses. But, you know, I... I just always feel like you know like you know bruce tim is always about it it sounds like to me you know because they work in hollywood and, and sort of even though the animation is probably looked down upon compared to live action film and all this other stuff i think there's still that air of you know film is better than comics is better than tv and yada 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 right and like I don't know, I just I just feel like I could see them looking at this and going, I could write a better story than this, you know, and then and then trying it and then to me I think if, if that's if that first twenty minutes is what they gave us, I think that's not true. You know what I mean? But I, I would think you could make some kind of, you know, meager adaptation of this, you know, cut out slash and just have it be her and Cormorant and, you know, go with it or whatever. You know, something like that. And and, you know, but you know, I, I guess it's neither here nor there, but I, I just thought I'd, I'd kind of mention my my thoughts on that in general, that it was not anything I was, like, super fond of, you know, that, that first 20 minutes, and that, that th- this is something I generally think of, like, this special sort of goes hand in hand with the killing joke for me, and, I mean, I did really read this special in real time, so... It, I guess I've always thought of it, you know, like I know some people, maybe it's an afterthought, you know, it's not nearly as famous as Alan Moore's Killing Joke, you know, even though everybody's read The Killing Joke, I suppose, I bet you everybody's not read this Batgirl special, and so sometimes I think it's worth, you know, shedding some light on it and kind of pointing a finger at it and going, hey, remember this? Because this is kind of, in its own way, like a companion piece to it, so... I just thought it'd be worth sort of discussing and pointing out, and, and again, it is something that I read, you know, from a spinner rack, so it sort of fits this whole criteria for our little theme topic and everything.
4: That first half hour of the Killing Joke DTV was garbage.
3: Yeah, it was pretty bad.
1: Oh, uh, about Bruce Tim, like I just want to quote one of my favorite random lines from Foolie Cooley: "Pervert, he's a pervert." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, I I, I I I was telling Mike about it. I, I think he it, it's it's weird how that all played out too, cause cause he, it 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 felt like he got so embarrassed, you know. And it's like one of those things where you felt like I bet you, you know, he was totally pushing for it, cause he always is, in all these things, whether it's like Batman Beyond or whatever. But I I I really think he thought this was gonna be like totally cool, and there wasn't gonna be any backlash over it. And then when there was, it's like I don't know, it's like that weird like squirrely like guy that you know you, you, i i you know this kind of you know paul riser and aliens guy that's like i told you guys we couldn't adapt this and it was unfilmable you know and i'm just like you know you're a <laughs> i don't know I, I i i think it's just very very kind of squirrely or whatever so i don't know I, I i guess that's just me you know but anyway so I think we will we will move on from that. But but you know just to capsize my thoughts. I mean you know this was fun to revisit the the Batgirl special and you know I did really like the art and you know the story is pretty cool and of course it's at least it's a meaty story. It's not something that you're going to be sitting there going oh I just wasted my time and it was this kind of you know disposable entertainment that you forget as soon as you read it you know it, it sort of had some some meat to it and everything you know and and there's there's fun cameos from different characters if you like that too if you're sort of paying attention there's the you know the nightwing robin or nightwing jason todd cameo in it and you know different characters like green lantern and stuff if you're actually like sitting there paying attention to it so
2: so what my name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Batgirl to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spalway, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their backroll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his backroll run, Dwayne Srazynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batworld to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers.
3: I guess we will move on to the next book, which is something that Justin has brought to the table. And that's going to be Fantastic Four, issue 346. So why don't you take it away, Justin, and let us know what's going on with that.
1: All right. As Derek said, my issue is Fantastic Four, 346. It has a publishing date of November 1990. It was written and illustrated by Walt Simonson. And the name of the story is 70 Million Years B.C., and then some And the story is kind of I don't know like It it's been ages since i've read this comic and I haven't read the issues Surrounding it in a long time either and like this this whole era where you have Sharon ventura as She thing like I mean i'm a huge fantastic four fan, but my knowledge of this whole era When she was the she thing is kind of kind of sketchy. So I may have to like have Derek like You know back me up on some stuff or fill in some blanks but but basically the fantastic four and a group of army soldiers are Kind of stuck on this island. that's become Unhinged or unstuck in time and this island is has various different periods of prehistory like Cenozoic Jurassic, is Awake, and whatnot, and it's full of like dinosaurs and things. And not only that, but the Fantastic Four, they don't have their powers. So, the like, Mr. Fantastic is kind of like doing his like best, like Professor from Gilligan's Island thing, like, you know, directing everyone, like, how to like build a raft and do all of this stuff. You have like a bit of drama with Sharon and Ben Grimm because they're in a relationship, and since they've lost their powers, uh, Sharon is now a normal woman. She's actually no longer she thing. She's that, you know normal human woman And she there's you know, there's some uh, as Mike might say some feels between them like what's gonna happen and you know, she she kind of wishes That they could stay on this island forever and they could you know live happily as like caveman and cavewoman or whatnot. But anyway they complete this raft and you know after fighting a, a t-rex and whatnot they launch it and they're out in the ocean and they hit like this barrier that prevents them from leaving and they fight like some kind of like plesiosaur I think it's a chronosaurus and after the soldiers like destroy the chronosaurus they manage to break through this barrier and the raft disappears but then it's like they start rising out of the water and the invisible woman like has her powers back She has she has them on like an invisible raft and that's kind of the end of the issue This this is the first issue of fantastic Four I bought at a grocery store Like I bought this at a, a Pee Wiggly like while you know uh, while waiting on my mom to like finish shopping And the main reason I bought this like I was familiar with the fantastic four like I you know I'd watched like some of the old cartoons and whatnot and read a few comics before this but the reason I bought this it was because of the great cover. Like you have this great cover with the Fantastic Four. So they're like trapped on this ledge. They're pointing spears at a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And like most kids, I was crazy about dinosaurs. So that like that was that was the impetus for buying that. I was like, whoa, cool. Like the Fantastic Four, they're fighting a dinosaur and you know, you, you see Sharon on the cover, she's wearing like, you know, like cave girl stuff. So I like I didn't know who she was. I just thought she was like a cave girl or, you know, like Shauna the She-Devil or some kind of character like that. So I was like, man, this is cool. But once you get into it, like, there's kind of like some wacky stuff going on. Like, I I think this is the time period when Johnny was married to Alicia Masters. Yeah. But then he's like, he's kind of hung up on Nebula. Like, they had encountered Nebula. And he's kind of like, wow, like, you know, Nebula. Woohoo. And I was like, wait a minute. Are you married to Alicia? Well, I guess, you know, really technically... Elijah the scroll who's pretending to be Alicia but whatnot you know I was like well that's kind of odd and then like you know you have you have the whole like Sharon and like Sharon has like her own set of issues like I I know part of her backstory like she was in and Derek can like maybe correct me or back me up but like she was like in a couple issues of Captain America and she was like uh raped or molested by somebody's goons or something and then I mean this is like when she was uh in her persona as like the second Miss Marvel, and then she became, or she was transferred to like the Fantastic Four title, and then became She Thing.
2: Yeah, she
3: she had a lot of sort of problems with dudes, like yeah. when she first showed up on the Fantastic Four because of that. And then I think she, I think she was also in the Things ongoing book because he was doing that whole wrestling circuit thing, and I think that's where he first met her. So I think that's where they had that common. Bond before they were all on like the new fantastic four together i mean i guess putting some of this in perspective like this whole story arc this is kind of like the this is almost like the last issue of a time travel story arc that walt simonson started when he took over the fantastic four i think it was if this is 346 i think he took it over with like three i want to say like 339 because there's that cover with him and death's head and iron man i think and they're guest starring in the book and you know the, the fantastic four is going through the time platform and the, you know they, they basically have all these various adventures but this seemed to be like the the finale to that because after this it would be the whole i mean it would still be walt simonson writing but it'd be the whole art adams arc that tony mentioned he was really fond of with the the new fantastic four basically oh, which yeah, was yeah. like you know Gray Hulk yeah. and, and Ghost Rider and Wolverine and Spider-Man and everything like that. So that, I mean, to put it in perspective, like that's, you know, sort of leading into that era, but also, you know, it, you know the, the previous issues were all sort of related to time travel and cross-time council stuff, and there were all these kind of various issues that dealt with stuff. Another thing that might be interesting to bring up in terms of the framework is, this is 1990, so Jurassic Park is pretty much on everybody's minds so i I think there i mean obviously like walt simonson and dinosaurs like you can't really go wrong with (laughs) that but but like you know so you know obviously like it'd be great no matter when it was but i i think i think probably jurassic park being like a mega blockbuster movie that was either out at the time or like had just come out that summer you know was probably like you know dinosaurs being cool being like a a hip thing was probably on the forefront of everybody's minds at the time so i I think that probably played a lot into it i mean i guess another thing that's kind of weird is at this point you know ben Grimm is not a mutated monster either i mean he is a human being who has like a suit of armor that looks like the thing and and part of their sort of conflict or struggle being in this weird time displacement area is the idea that you know sharon carter or i'm sorry sharon carter sharon ventura is um is is you know mutating back into just uh, a beautiful human being like you're saying like you know she kind of looked like shauna the she-devil on the cover like she was kind of like this this hot looking cave girl basically in like tattered clothes and stuff and you know the idea that they were both human at the same time instead of being like really weird lumpy thing people making out with each other, which always creeped me out, but I read it anyway, but like the, you know, see you know, basically they're both human beings and, and she has that moment that kind of echoes like Ben Grimm at the end of secret wars, you know, where he was kind of like, I just want to stay on battle world and like be human guys. So see y'all later. And I'm going to walk around on this Rocky planet, in my underwear for the rest of my life, but I'll be happy. And of course that doesn't work out. And he, you know, goes off into his own comic book and stuff like that, but but it, it's kind of the same idea, you know and I guess Ben Grimm having already been down that path, he's kind of like saying hey baby, it's not gonna it, I know what you're thinking, but this probably isn't gonna work out for us, you know us staying here in this kind of weird, you know, basically kind of slowly collapsing time streams you know, and everything, because like you're saying, they had the basically, I think the idea was, you know, it's very Doctor Who, you know, where you have, like, you know, part of this island is is in the, you know, Jurassic period, part of the island is in the Creacious period part of the island is in the triassic period so like the older it gets you know the more it's basically slowly fading away from existence so they have to sort of you know run across this island and catch up you know basically oh we can't stay in the triassic we got to go to the jurassic and then we have to run out of the jurassic and go to the Creacious and basically you know keep keep going further down the timeline and 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 make sure we we don't get you know wiped out with all the you know collapsing distorting you know time frames or whatever that that are going on in the story but i mean obviously like the art's really cool um yeah. it's it's a fun story i mean th- this was something i think i was probably getting from the comic store at that point but i i remember you know being attracted to it because of you, you know, i i did like the fantastic four and as i've said i i really got into it with the steve engelhardt stuff but i think you know a little bit after that maybe i had sort of lost track of the fantastic four and i think walt simonson being the the writer creator creative force you know was something that sort of brought me back to the fold and then also maybe the fact that like death's head was in it and you know i sort of knew of him from transformers as well you know so it was like one of those things where i was like oh cool like this is gonna be neat you know so it was like something that I, i i i don't think i got like every single issue of this when it came out but i did get quite a few of them like i remember i remember the one with death's head i remember. Like, I think the issue before this, I I waterlogged it because I think I dropped it in my bathtub or something, but it was the one that had, like, the weird, like, Russian robot or whatever that had the hammer and sickle on it that they were, you know, like, so, I mean, I I, I remember issues Uh, from from this run.
1: Actually, three forty-five. Like, I'm surprised you don't remember that cover because it has a triceratops on it.
3: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So there's there's all those kind of kind of stuff. Yeah. So so yeah. i I I guess you know those are those are the kind of things that were. You know, I, I mean, the only other thing I have as far as a note is that you know there there is a, a Superman storyline that's kind of similar, like in a way that's called time and time again. And, like, that was, I think it was, like, a six-part storyline that ran through all the Superman titles. But it was basically, like, Superman bouncing around time. So, like, they, they send him back to, like, the 30s and 40s. And it's supposed to be all sort of meta because it's, like, he's going back to the era where he was actually, mm. quote, unquote, created, you know. But he's, mm-hmm. like, a certain strongman. And, you know, there, there's the, the issues where he gets ported into the future and hangs out with the Legion of Superheroes. And then that's kind of weird because it's, like, you know, not... Pre crisis, where Superboy did it all the time. So it was like one of these things where he was he was in the 5 year later era and it was kind of strange cuz you didn't see it that often so there there were all kinds of stuff like that that was going on where superman was basically just being bounced around time after shit would explode basically and and you know it's not exactly the same thing but i mean it did it did sort of make me think of it as well so that that's pretty much all i've got on
1: it i wanted to ask you mike like had you read this before or like do you do you have any familiarity with like this this era of the fantastic four or is this like totally like unknown land to you
4: no i i've read this before and like i've read yeah a chunk of this era before because yeah like derek like i like walt simonson's art and i you know i i liked death's head so i was trying to track down all his fantastic four appearances so he yeah he he shows up in and around this like era so yeah no i had read this before i like i i don't think i read it in like you know, five or six years at this point. But, like, I, I, I vaguely remember, like, the goings-on, basically. But uh, all, all I do remember is I used to think that Johnny Storm and Sue Richard's, like, haircuts from this era were awful. But... <laughs> yeah, they're 90s hair. But, yeah. I, I feel like, too, like, for, like, as, as long as, like... Johnny was married to Alicia or not Alicia whatever but it seemed like every single arc it was like you know you know, in this arc, he was, you know, attracted to Nebula. And then, like, I think the arc before this, like, Crystal, like, rejoined the Fantastic Four. And then he was, like, tempted by her. And then he was like, oh, man, like, I have a wife now, so I can't go screwing around and stuff. Like, it seemed to be, like, a common theme, like, with him. Every,
3: every arc is Johnny Storm has Blue Balls arc or yeah, whatever. Yeah, pretty much, yeah.
1: <laughs> like, I, I, I want to say, like, I... Traded this issue at school because like the the guy who wanted it was like really hugely into dinosaurs like way more than than me and I want to say like the comic I got in return was like an issue of X Men that Jim Lee had drawn I think like in the you know the...
3: Wait, with without dinosaurs obviously right right <laughs> it couldn't have been any of those ones where they went to the Savage Land yeah. then, probably.
1: I guess the the reason I picked this comic is because, you know, like I I'm I I am a big fan of the Fantastic Four and I'm kind of I'm kind of missing them. Like it's it's been like a year and a half I guess since the last issue was published and to to be honest, like I figured that Marvel wouldn't kind of come to its senses and whatnot and bring the Fantastic Four back as a you know big like you know a number one event the fantastic four back after a year of not being published you know like you know but uh but that that hasn't happened yet so i'm kind of like you know uh i miss the book and i've been like reading some old issues like going going back to like issue one and you know like i've i've read most of the early the early stuff in various formats whether it's like masterworks or you know black and white essentials and stuff but like you know some stuff like this like i you know, when you suggested like a, you know, a theme free spinnerack episode, I was like, you know what, I'd like to read this and maybe go back and read this whole era because I, like I said, I'm not all that familiar with the Sharon Ventura era of, of uh, Fantastic Four.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess I would say I kind of like it, especially the, the earlier stuff with Steve Englehart. You know, I'm pretty fond of that because that's when I started picking up. The Fantastic Four books and everything, so I I do enjoy it. So I, it's kind of weird, though. I guess what I'd say, and and so you can kind of get some comeuppance on me, though, is I I would imagine that team of the Fantastic Four, you know, the the you know Super Thing and 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 Sharon Ventura as as She Thing and. Crystal and Johnny, you know, like, I I would imagine that's tantamount to people who I make fun of that like, say, the Detroit Justice League or like, you know, bomber jacket era (laughs) Avengers, you know, like, to me, it's the first time I I read Fantastic Four. So that team and that era of it is very special to me. But I also kind of acknowledge that maybe to, to somebody who is just more vaguely familiar with the Fantastic Four or only only is familiar with, you know, the four core members and doesn't know every iteration of the team, whether it involves, like, Luke Cage or Black Panther and Storm or, you know, whoever, you know, happens to be on the team. She-Hulk, you know, isn't familiar with all those people who have been part of the team over the years, you know. It might kind of look at it and go, you know, oh, I don't get this, you know. So I I can appreciate that as well.
1: All right, now I'll just reiterate those... Those issues were like, you know, they're tripping through time and like Thor and Iron Man are with them and like, I I think they fight Galactus and there's like there's a you know there's an issue where like Thor fights Gladiator and that's that's like a really great cover too. Like those those are really good comics. Like I remember reading those a bit a bit after this and I was like man like that that was really good. But I just somehow I like never read a lot of those other issues like surrounding it. I guess.
0: Do you want to hear the origin of Superman or Batman? Of course not. You're listening to a geek culture podcast. You know the origins of Superman and Batman. You've always known them. Your unborn grandchildren know the origins of Superman and Batman. But what about Guy Gardner, Blue Beetle, or the Phantom Stranger? What about Firestorm, Sandman, or the Golden Age Fury? Those are just a few of the stories covered in the Secret Origins podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comic published by DC in the 1980s. Each episode of the Secret Origins podcast features me, Ryan Daly, and an all-star collection of guest hosts revealing or revisiting the legends of the DC superheroes and villains. And if you're already sick of hearing my voice on this promo, the good news is at least 50% of the talking on the Secret Origins podcast is done by a terrific guest from the podcast and blogging community. So check out the Secret Origins Podcast, available on iTunes and at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. All
3: right. Well, I I think, unless anybody has any other comments, I I think that probably wraps up our discussion on Fantastic Four, issue 346. I guess I I would just say to Justin his concerns about there not being a Fantastic Four comic book on the stands as we speak. I mean, they're, they're... there are characters that are getting some representation. I mean, I guess maybe I'm just giddy, uh, you know, with with some of the things I've been reading. Like, I kind of like the whole Lifebringer Galactus over in the Ultimates. Like, I kind of want, like, a, a goofy Marvel legend that's recolored, like, yellow or gold <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Because I, I think that's kind of neat. And, you know, there, there are other characters who have sort of escaped the the wrath of the ike perlmutter you know anti-life wave for the fantastic four or whatever like where you know you've got ben Grimm in the guardians of the galaxy and he he it's interesting because he he made quite a few appearances in the the silver surfer book that i've been reading and and they almost went out of their way to have his costume get wrecked up so that he looked kind of like the classic thing i think i think that was sort of on purpose so that he basically he, he his costume was in such tatters that he really wasn't wearing the guardians of the galaxy outfit he's got you know it was kind of like he was just wearing his you know underwear that was you know wrecked up and that was basically it and stuff and you know i guess you know johnny storm's over in the humans doing inhumany things which i think you would probably know more about than i would but you know, so, I mean, and, and then Doctor Doom, of course, is off being the superior Iron Doctor Doom or what have <laughs> you. So so there's there, there, there are, you know, elements of the Fantastic Four that are still out there in the Marvel Universe. And then, you know, to maybe end it on sort of an even more positive note, I mean, we, we just did see at, you know, San Diego Comic-Con, you know, they did show a legend of the Invisible Woman. So I think if there is some kind of, Embargo on Fantastic Four things. If they've got that in the works, you know, maybe maybe things are looking up. Like maybe it won't be after the first year that you'll get that Fantastic Four number one, you know, heralding in the new age of Fantastic Four. But maybe you know, maybe in another couple of years, you know, you'll get that. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold out. You know, I wouldn't give up hope on that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure. You know, everything like this is silical and business and stuff like that. I'm sure at some point. You know, the Fantastic Four won't be the the ugly redheaded stepchild of the Marvel Universe in terms of film and and the marketing and all that stuff forever. You know, so I'm I'm sure they'll they'll be bringing them back at some point.
4: Doctor Doom just needs to stay away from blogs. I hate to
1: interfere with all of your important work. Guess we'll just have to make history without you. Sue gonna be there.
4: Can I I put my dick
0: in her? Yes, Victor, she'll be there.
2: Clean yourself up, son. All
3: right, so, so let's move on to the final book of the evening, and this is something that Mike brought for us to read tonight. This is actually What If... From volume number two, and it's issue number 61. So, why don't you regale us with what if issue number 61, Mike?
4: Well, this, like, this, like, I, at this point, I, I was like 10 years old when this came out, and I already had, like, stacks of comics from my cousin, and there was a comic book store, like, relatively near my house, so I, like, you know, I'd go there and buy up stuff. And, uh, like, I first noticed this, like, issue in a grocery market that was, like, down our street called Shaw's. Like, I, I had noticed, like, with their magazine section, they had, like, a spinner rack now. And, like, I usually I had gone to, like, you know, food shopping with my folks, but I had never really... Usually I'd go to, like, the toy section or whatever in the supermarket and chill there, but... Since I was like reading so much, like I went to the magazine section, I was like, oh, they have comics here, too. So for some reason, they had a ton of what ifs like they would always have like what if like uh, any like the last like five months of what if stock. I don't know if it was because they didn't sell very well or what. But, like, they always had tons of what-ifs, and this was, like, one of the first ones I bought because, obviously, like, I was a Spider-Man fan, and, like, you know, my my interest in Spider-Man was exploding at that point, and, like, the, the, the new, like, Fox Kids cartoon was going to premiere that year. And, you know, I like I would be stepping into like, you know, being a Spider-Man fan for the rest of my life like that year. So anything with Spider-Man on it, it was pretty much like I had to own it. So like this this issue, I snatched it up. I actually hadn't read like any of the like current stuff that this issue actually like talks about at that point. But, like, it wasn't really a detriment to me, but, like, I, you know, I, I, you can see how, like, it would be a problem. Like, once once I read the summary for it, it might be a problem if you didn't know what you were getting into, basically. But this issue is written by Kurt Busick, who is obviously, you know, nowadays is regarded as a, you know, well-regarded comic writer and, a, you know, a very seasoned comic writer but back then i think this is like probably when he was still like kind of like making his bones and like you know not you know obviously not as uh you know well uh well seasoned or experienced at that point this issue has like four artists too and like I don't think I noticed it when I was like that young, like, like which is weird because like the first artist I think you guys were joking about is looks like like <laughs> like yeah it's like Archie comics art or Sonic the Hedgehog like style art or something, but I I don't know if I was that like my I wasn't my eyes weren't trained enough to like really if i did could tell that the art was different like i didn't like it didn't matter to me basically but it's drawn by Kirk Jarvernon, Jim Amash, Andy Wildman and Derek Yaniger and obviously like you know uh, you know us that like most of us are transformers fans and like we we obviously know who Andrew Wildman and Derek Yaniger are the other two like yeah, I guess I think you said Derek, like that that uh, Kirk Javernin guy, like he drew mostly like Archie stuff before this.
3: I think it was either him or Jim and Mash, but but I think because I think I think one of them is the anchor that's like overpowering pretty much like all the other art. Yeah, in the book. and then and then the other guy, I think it's Jim and Mash. Like when I looked him up. I was like, "Oh, I wonder what his other credits are." And it's like, you know, Sonic Universe, you know, Archie, you know, and and Jughead and, you know, like what whatever it was. And I all of a sudden like a light bulb just sort of kicked in and I just kind of went, "Oh." Yeah, that kind you know, like sense. like yeah. I'm like, um, like that kind of makes sense because it's like the first like I don't know, 12 or so pages, you're just kind of like, "Wow, this is very cartoony," you know. Yeah.
4: Oh, like a, my avatar is is an Aunt May drawing from like the first few pages, and she's got a like Peter Griffin like double ball chin or something. Like, I mean, you you
3: you'd be hard pressed to to tell the difference between Aunt May and Geraldine Grundy with with the art. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, like they'd probably be you know secret sisters or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty wacky. I'm just gonna read a
4: summary off, like, Comic Vine or some... I forgot where I am. Uh, Yeah, it's Comic Vine for this issue, because I didn't bother to write it because I'm lazy. What if Spider-Man's parents destroyed his family? In just as a background, in Amazing Spider-Man 388, Spider-Man discovered that his parents were actually synthetic beings sent by the chameleon to discover his secret identity. Spider-Man stopped them before they were able to, but what if Spider-Man's parents had succeeded? What if they had destroyed his family? There's an error in that, that little summary so far. The robot parents did discover his secret identity, but they didn't they weren't able to blab it to like the chameleon before they were destroyed in the actual continuity. Anyway, and as far as this issue goes, it starts off Peter Parker is asking Aunt May if she'd be willing to see a doctor because she's been you know in the regular continuity she's been you know telling peter basically or intimating that she suspects that mary and richard parker who had returned from the dead the quote-unquote dead at this point in the comics are not actually his parents and are imposters at this point peter's kind of wondering if aunt May's starting to lose her mind so he's he like for a few months he was kind of like talking with Mary Jane to see if maybe they should like see some kind of specialist for Aunt May or something. Mary and Richard Parker arrive to Aunt May's residence, and May cries out that they can't be Peter's parents. Peter's spider sense goes off, so he decides to go for a walk with Aunt May. As the the pair walk to Peter's apartment, Richard Parker decides. They have to report into their employer, or their creator, whatever you want to say. When he does so, he's he's given orders to kill Spider-Man. Since they know that Peter Parker and Spider-Man are one and the same, they head after Aunt May and Peter to back to their apartment to kill them. Once they arrive, Mary and Richard burst through the wall and turn into their like weird metamorphic cyborg forms. They rip open Peter's shirt, which has, you know, obviously he's got a Spider-Man shirt underneath which Aunt May sees, and she kind of freaks out. But before you know, Aunt May can digest the information, both her and Mary Jane are killed by Peter's quote-unquote mom, or cyborg mom, or whatever you want to call it. Peter goes pretty crazy at this, and he takes the offensive against his parents. He, he's kind of completely lost it. He, he like, keeps... screaming, like, where are the real, like, Mary Jane and Aunt May, because now he thinks everyone's a fake, basically. The fight moves outside, and Mary and Richard decide they must remorph into human forms and destroy Spider-Man a different way. They go to the police station and tell them that Aunt May had found out that Peter Parker was Spider-Man, and so he killed her and Mary Jane, and now he's after Richard and Mary. So the basically the bug, uh, a bunch of bystanders on the street saw Peter Parker like rampaging with this Spider-Man shirt on and no mask. So basically, like Peter's identity is outed. The headline is basically that superhero goes crazy and kills wife and aunt, and you know his parents are look like innocent dupes. in this, the story quickly spreads. Flash Thompson and Robbie Robertson believe something is rotten but Jonah Jameson is all too ready to believe that Spider-Man could do such a thing. Spider-Man smashes into the bugle and demands to know where his parents are being kept in protective custody. Uh, Once he learns that the location is the Avengers Mansion, Spider-Man rushes over there, but he's confronted by Captain America and the Human Torch, who both believe that there's more to the story and could think he's innocent. But they want to take him in, so obviously spider- Peter like decides to escape. Earlier, in I guess in real continuity, he had tagged the Vulture with a spider tracer, so he manages to track the Vulture down to the Chameleon's hideout. Who in the Chameleon and the Vulture being like the masterminds behind this plan, or at least like initially, that's what it seems like. At the Chameleon's headquarters, Spider-Man like beats down the Vulture fairly easily. He wants to find out what exactly his quote unquote parents are, so he kind of grabs Chameleon by the throat and like, you know, throttles the information out of him. And Chameleon tells him like how the parents are basically, you know, synthoids basically used to like infiltrate Peter Parker's life and discover Spider-Man's secret identity. The Chameleon pushes it too far though, and morphs into Mary Jane saying, you know, you wouldn't kill your wife, would you? That causes Spider-Man to snap. He tosses Chameleon through a window which kills the chameleon and Spider-Man's pretty much like, well, you know, uh, it's too, I'm too far gone now, so it doesn't really bother him. He heads to a- Avengers Mansion to deal with his two parents. He arrives just in time to see them escaping the mansion and sets after them. He confronts them and the trio begin a violent battle uh, as the Human Torch watches. The two uh, like synthoid parents basically decide to employ a different tactic as they're sort of running out of power basically they shift back into like their human forms and let themselves be destroyed and they like plummet to their deaths and are impaled on some debris spider-man like sets down and when when spider-man looks up basically like all the entire avengers the fantastic four Like, various other heroes, the police and, like, other people are all just, like, standing there, like, conveniently. Flash Thompson kind of yells out, you know, tell him, Spidey, like, tell him that this is, like, all a mistake and, like, you're innocent. But basically, Peter's utterly defeated at this point and he just kind of gives up. From the shadows, like, a mysterious shadowy mastermind watches and laughs in triumph. And that's where this ends. So, yeah, like... As as per usual what ifs, Spider Man gets it pretty rough, but he didn't die at least. So I mean I guess that's a plus. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's,
3: so. That was totally my note. My note was proving once again if Spidey doesn't get unceremoniously like killed in a what if, he'll end up getting like royally screwed. Yeah, so. Yeah, when I first
4: read this I was kinda like like look like, I don't know if I knew exact I knew exactly that Peter Parker didn't have parents. But then I was like, wait, his parents came back and like I, I kind of like I had to look at some of the issues of like the current issues of comics that I had. And I was kind of like, oh, so that's why he's like so mad in these issues, because like this was the era where he was like, I am the spider and like running around and like beating yeah. the shit out of people because he was super angry and stuff. And I was like, oh, I get it now, because, yeah, the, his parents were like robots or whatever. Like so you,
3: you bury Peter Parker, you
4: bury him yeah so,
3: yeah thank, thanks daredevil thanks yeah so,
4: so it was it was it, it was a pretty awful era like and it, it like it does. even though it was like one of my the, probably like the earliest era i started following like current day like spider-man like there's no excuse for it basically like i don't have a lot of nostalgic like fondness for this era first i had to like digest that then like obviously uh, like I think before this, I had only read, in, in terms of what-ifs, like, uh, like I had read a bunch of Volume 1 and some early Volume 2, but in, in terms of Spider-Man what-ifs, I think I've only read, like, what if the alien costume had possessed Spider-Man, and then I think what if he kept his six arms, and then, I don't know, there was something else. Like, oh, well, uh, what if Uncle Ben had lived? Like, so... Like in the alien costume one, he dies. So I was like, okay, well, you know, what ifs? Like I said, what ifs are usually pretty brutal to like Spider Man. This one, yeah, this one's kind of depressing. And let me, I'll point this out too. And it's weird. Like the the last panel, it says like a shadowy figure like watches and laughs like triumphantly. I'm kind of like, well, okay, it can't be the chameleon because the chameleon is dead.
2: dead, Yeah,
4: so. I'm assuming it's supposed to be Harry Osborn because at this point they were they were kind of hinting that Harry Osborn was still alive or that he they wanted him to be like the mastermind behind the clone saga, but like it's actually it might be a little too early for like him to be the mastermind behind the clone saga because that hadn't even started yet. But I don't know, like it, it's it was a very weird. That's
3: what I, that's what I was gonna ask you about because because I know like for me. I've never read this What If before we read it for the show tonight, so this is the first time I've actually read this story. But the era that it's supposed to be spinning out of, I mean, I was reading all the Spider-Man titles pretty religiously, even though I think I've sort of designated in my own mind when Spider-Man sort of lost his way for me was like amazing 375 when he made the truce with Venom. Like I can kind of pinpoint it in hindsight, but at the time I don't think I realized that it's like, I still kept reading all the crossover titles. I kept reading, you know, maximum clonage and and just everything, you know, like I kept reading yeah. it, but, but I think in my heart of hearts, like that, th- this is kind of shortly after Spider-Man sort of lost his way for me. And I think like, I mean, the the only saving grace of the storyline that this spins out of, you know, is called Pursuit, and it's like, the only saving grace is that great moment where he sees that Harry Osborn was behind the synthesoid parents, and there's the videotape where he does the whole gotcha thing, which is carried over from all the J.M.D. Mateus spectacular Spider-Mans, which is like a brilliant, like, last epilogue page... Hello old buddy, if you punched up my name and opened this file, then I can safely assume you've defeated the chameleon. Oh well, I expected you would eventually, but not before I invaded your life again. Not before I used your precious mommy and daddy to cause a small amount of suffering. Call it a little payback for what I suffered when you killed my father. In other words, old buddy. Gotcha. 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 gotcha, gotcha. gotcha.
4: Yeah, and it's 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 so it's such a like devastating moment because like Harry's dead at that point and he made peace with Harry basically. But
3: but there were still all these plans in the background yeah. that were set into motion even before that happened. And and that's the whole point. If it was if the shadowy figure is Harry, well Harry's dead. I mean, even if he comes back later on or you know, whatever the story yeah. is, yeah. like at that point in time he's dead. And he killed Chameleon. So that that was what I was going to ask you. I was like, who the fuck is the shadowy figure, man? Yeah. Well, I guess, like,
4: in, in retrospect, I guess it has to be, like, Norman Osborn, hmm. even though that clearly wasn't even a gleam in anyone's eye at this point. But, uh-huh. like, like, yeah, no, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't, like, sometimes, like, these what-ifs, like, oddly predicted the future of storylines. Like... I know there's there's a what if later on like I think it's like what if the Scarlet Spider killed Spider-Man and it's like there's some point in like midway through the Clone Saga where Peter like uh, I forget like Peter is under the Jackal's mind control and like the Scarlet Spider like snaps him out of it but like the the point of that what if is like he doesn't snap him out of it and Peter dies so Ben like basically takes Peter's place and then, like, at the end of that What If, the Green Goblin attacks him. But, like, no one knew that Norman Osborn was coming back at that point. So, like, I'm kind of, like, like I like, looking back at it in retrospect, I was like, is that, like, almost like a spoiler or something? Like, or, you know, it was just a coincidence or what? But I don't know. It's, it's weird.
3: You know what's weird for me is that I think my comment on Spider-Man's actions in this story, like, he... He gets turned insane, like really. I, I I hate to say it, like I get it. He watched Mary Jane and Aunt May get clobbered by like hammers, and they died. But like, he saw Gwen Stacy died, and he didn't. He didn't go insane. He saw like gene de wolf die and he didn't like lose his fucking marbles you know what i mean like he 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 lived through uncle ben dying and he didn't lose his marbles you know like like there have been people in his life that have died before but it's like i think the real quote-unquote spider-man was so messed up during this period you know like so i am the spider like cuckoo kachoo or whatever you know like that the only way the what-if could have been seen as a divergence from what was already happening is if they just made him absolutely, like, bat-shit insane. So it's, like, he just starts running around, like, slapping, like, Robbie Robertson. Like, I mean, it, it's, like, you get the idea, like, if he's using spider strength, like, he could probably kill Robbie Robertson with the the smack that he laid down on him. And, like, he's running around, like, when, when he loses it and he starts, like... Thrown around, like, pedestrians and stuff. And I'm just like, wow, man. Like, he's just he's just totally gone, like, batshit insane in this. And it's like, I'd level that as a criticism, like, that I don't think Peter Parker would ever go that batshit insane. But, like, if you compare it to the Pursuit storyline, he's already, like, hunting yeah, people down and going yep. batshit insane. So it's like, the, the only way to to make it any more divergent from the existing Spider-Man comics is like to have them be like extremely crazy and, and angry, you know? And it's just like, wow, like, you know, that that's the only way that they could make it any divergent. So it's like, it's weird. I, I understand the context of it, but it, it does seem like rather, I mean like that he's just, he's willing to like just go ahead and attack Captain America, you know? And it's just like, dude, like I, I get that you're upset, bro. But like, you know, it just seems like he's he's quick to he's, he's quick to fight without sort of explaining yeah. anything or you know, and, and, and
4: and it's like. Like the ending kind of like implies that like since his parents turned back into their human forms, it's like it's like the perfect frame up. But like I feel like you know if Reed Richards looked at them for like two seconds, like he'd be cleared of like most of the crimes and stuff. right,
3: right. It's like it's like, like it's like there's no there's no uh, springs like popping out of their like sides or whatever. It's like they, they look totally. organic.
4: Reed Richards is looking at like Richard Parker, and he's like, "Who's this handsome fellow?" Like, he's (laughs) he's, he's like, he looks just like me with the gray temples and all that. Like, but. This is also one of those, like, early issues I read that gave me the impression that Flash Thompson was a cool guy. Like, because he was, like, the, yeah, he's, like, the only one who was, like, you know, this is all fucked up. Like, Spider-Man wouldn't do this.
3: That, that like, was the other question I was going to ask you. Is that supposed to be Liz Allen that's with him, or Liz... I, get,
4: I guess so, yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, I guess so.
3: I, I just, I wasn't really sure who that was supposed to be. So, like, because I guess, you know, like we've been saying, some of the art is not... You know, I mean, it's, well, the cartoony stuff is pretty bad. Like, I, I, I'll i just say I don't really like that first, like, 10 or 12 pages or whatever. And then once it got into, like, Andy Wildman and he's drawing, like, the Black Widow and Flash Thompson is there with, you know, Liz or whoever it's supposed to be. But, yeah, I, I was really kind of. Strapping my brain, wondering who that was supposed to be, but I, I guess it could only be either Liz or, or maybe like a really fugly looking Joy Mercado or something. I don't know, but I think it's gotta be Liz, but
4: it's just I don't know, it's just weird because you're like, Wait, where's like little Normie? and like, Shouldn't you be mourning your husband? You're like, Didn't Harry just die like recently? Like yeah, why are you just yeah. why are you chilling with Flash like at a coffee shop or whatever? But
3: hey man, Flash gets around, like, no, I guess so, yeah. I don't know. yeah.
4: I, I was going to say, Justin, like uh, I was going to ask you, like I, I told you you'd like like the last page because it's like your era of Avengers like lined up there. Like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, like, and... it's like
1: it's all your favorite 90s characters. Like, you know, Darkhawk and Sleepwalker. Because yes, I was like, Sleepwalker,
4: yeah. <laughs> it's
3: like, like Spider-Man's like, don't you
4: judge me, Sleepwalker! Yeah, that,
3: that's, a total, that's a total, like, silent judgment panel where they're like, we've just walked in on you on this intimate moment where you've killed your cyborg parents and they don't even have to really, like, say anything. It's just like, you're in trouble now.
4: R- rage, like, Sleepwalker, like, Darkhawk, <laughs> like, none of you can judge me, like... <laughs>
3: None of you have four comics. Stop judging me. Yeah,
4: but, I uh, don't Justin, what do you think of this issue?
1: I liked it. Uh, I had never read it before, and I thought it was pretty good, but, like, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, and, and you've talked about this a little bit, like, I wanted to, to ask you about, like, the really for reals events that happened, because I, like, I remember reading some of these, like, robot parent issues, like, when they originally came out, but my memories of those comics are pretty hazy. So, like, what, what really for reals happened? Like, I I know like the chameleon was involved. That's basically all I remember. Was like the red skull involved, or is that something else I'm thinking of?
4: No, it, it like like Derek was saying, it was all like a, a like a scheme that like Harry Osborn like concocted like before he like you know kind of redeemed himself on his deathbed, basically. Where like, you know, he they the two obviously whatever, whatever you want to call them, the LMDs or the synthesid parents were implanted into Peter's life. He gives like Chameleon the intro like the, the idea to do that, but he doesn't actually tell Chameleon who Peter is. So the Chameleon's plan is to use Peter Parker's parents because he knows that Peter Parker knows Spider Man, so he thinks that Peter Parker will share Spider-Man's secret identity with his parents, so it's kind of like a weird, like, several Mm. degrees of separation thing that, like, doesn't really hold up under scrutiny, but I I don't know. But Chameleon
3: um... was kind of a nutball at the time, too, because he wasn't quite the way he used to be, where I I felt like he was sort of, like, a competent villain, but in, in that era, it was like, he started like morphing into Craven, and it was all about how Craven, like, you know, was his best bud, but also abused him. And, like, I don't know, he just seemed very kind of. Like, I mean, basically, by the end of that story, he's, like, a dribbling idiot going, yeah. like, you know, oh, don't hurt me, Yeah, you know. Yeah, that,
4: that, D, D, Ma- one of D. Mateus's, like, you know, like, villains aren't really bad guys, like, they're just damaged individuals, like, you know, D. Mateus used to love doing that, like, well, so. Well, I mean,
3: he, you know, at that point, Chameleon definitely belonged in, what did they call it, like, Ravencross. Ravencross. Raven The, the yeah. Spider-Man's version of Arkham Asylum or yeah. whatever. Yeah.
4: But I don't know, in in answer to your question, Justin, basically, like, Peter eventually tells his parents he's Spider-Man. Their programming kicks in, but the mom, like, has, like, maternal feelings for him, so she doesn't, like, blow his identity, and then, like, he ends up fighting them, and then they die, and then, like, Peter goes crazy over it, basically, so. So this,
1: this has nothing to do with, like, their backstory of like being like spies or shield agents or like no that, that's a whole another like story i'm confused pretty in. much
4: yeah they just okay. said that they they like they they claim they were like held in a russian gulag for like 20 years or whatever and they you know they weren't actually killed by the red skull or the fake red scholar i forgot how that went but like yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, also, like like you said, like, he's ready to fight Cap and, like, you know, the Human Torch. But, like, at least, like, I feel like Johnny and, like, Cap are, like, two of the guys who would, like, give him the benefit of the doubt, basically. Well, it's, it's weird.
3: Like, they, they kind of do, but, he, I mean, he's, like, fucking nutballs yeah. at that yep. point. Like, I mean, there's no, it's it's almost like there's no talking to him. And it's, like, it's like that's how extreme... You know, sorry to coin the nineties, you know, but that's how extreme, extreme. you know, extreme. it had to be to like separate it from like the, the real continuity at the time, you know, to, to actually make it somewhat different or whatever. And and man, death by Hammer sickle from a cyborg has got to be a lame way to go to <laughs>
2: yeah
3: um, May and mary jane like that's yeah. just they get they get bonked on the head and their skulls are smashed we assume but the art is so you know that i think that's part of my problem with it is not so much that it's cartoony but like how how sort of dark and and kind of serious that story is supposed to be and it's like you it, i mean it'd be like you know oh the first, like, 12 pages of Dark Knight Returns are done by, like, Dan DiCarlo or something, you know? Like, it just doesn't work, you know? It doesn't make any sense, you
1: know? DC Presents, Scotty's Young. <laughs> it's a joke.
3: It's like these little, these little chibi guys, like, shooting people <laughs> in the spine and shit and laughing about it or whatever. And then, I guess, what, the midgets that show up at the, uh, the, the Gotham County Fair are actually just normal people or whatever? <laughs> like, I don't know. But, yeah, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, but
4: yeah, so like aside from obviously some like nostalgic, like fondness for the, you know, obviously for having bought this issue, like where I bought it and when I bought it, like it doesn't really hold up over time. And like this whole era of Spider-Man is pretty, pretty not fun to read, basically. But, you know, like at least, you know, Andrew Wildman, Derek Yanniger's pages are pretty good. And
3: yeah, yeah, I agree with
4: that. You know, it's Kurt Busick, so I mean, yeah, like there are moments of like, you know, like I said, like on the spot characterization from like characters like Flash and Johnny and Captain America and stuff, but the rest of it is kinda eh.
3: Yeah, I think I think in terms of what you're saying about things being kind of premonition, I mean I mean the, the moment where they sort of reveal or you know where Spider-Man is nutballs and reveals his identity to basically everybody else. There there are those kind of moments with like Jonah Jameson, you know that that kind of in a weird way, like you said, are are sort of like predictive of say something like Civil War. You know where you get the the effect and and sort of response of of Peter Parker's supporting cast when they it sort of dawns on them that oh this guy who has been our photographer for all these years is actually spider-man like and he was he was under our nose the whole time and we didn't know and you know robbie's like well jonah don't be so hard and then spider-man comes in and like fucking police brutalities his ass like across the room or whatever and you're like holy crap spider-man <laughs> yeah, like dude, calm the fuck down. Yeah. Like, you, you know, know
4: it's 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 interesting because comic vines like page for this like the list of characters lists harry osborne so they must have assumed the same thing that the shadowy figure is harry osborne
3: which which makes no sense yeah exactly
4: it doesn't make any sense yeah that'd be a good question to like email kurt Busick about like just who was the shadowy figure and what if number 61 like did you intend that to be harry osborne like i bet no one's asked him that before but yeah
3: He's like, I did not write that. Yeah,
4: exactly. <laughs> what are you talking about? I never wrote anything of the sort.
3: I suppose if we ever run into him at a con, that's, that's something we could put in our back pockets. All right, well, I, I think that kind of wraps things up for the, the three comic books we brought for this evening. If you guys have enjoyed listening to our episode of Fanholes Comic Books, Motherfucker, Do You Read Them? We hope you will consider checking out some of our other shows. We have the... FanHole's podcast proper. We've got our other spinoff shows like FanHole's Sentai Saturdays, Mobile Suit Mondays, Toku Thursdays, and Transformers Tuesdays. If you have any comments questions concerns if you are kurt music and you do know who the shadowy figure is you can feel free to email us at fanholes podcast at gmail.com we are of course on the fanholes podcast blogspot.com you can find us on all kinds of social medias like facebook tumblr twitter instagram we can be streamed on stitcher radio and we can be found on itunes we of course appreciate any reviews and or positive feedback that we received, and until the next time, this is going to be Derek, Derek W.C. going nutballs. <laughs> Signing off.
4: This is Mike punching Derek
3: across the room. <laughs> Brutality. Brutality.
1: Hey, this is Justin, and I think I'm a clone now.
4: You're some kind of weird synthoid. <laughs> Where's the real Justin?
3: Where
1: is he? Hey. Wait, who was the burn victim?
3: (laughs) Who was the shadowy figure? I like how Spider-Man was really expecting like the real Mary Jane and Ame to pop up out of the closet and be like, see,
4: we're fine. You know, like
3: that's what he was desperately clinging to. Wow. Poor Sharon. <laughs> She's like, I'm all ugly now. It's okay, baby. You can be ugly with me. I still do you. <laughs> I still loves you, Even though you got a cooch made of rock. <laughs> Ugh, what a revolting development.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: Is this something from the Yancey Street?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: That—that's like a Kevin Smith territory. Cause I'm like, well, like her, you know, like her, her, her insides would be like normal, right? So like, it—I mean, if—if if she was like with the thing, like that would hurt, wouldn't it? I'm like, yes. I don't want to go down that road. That's <laughs> like
2: that way <laughs> lies madness.